Well, it's so good to uh, be with you this morning, and uh, it's always great to worship together, isn't it? As Catherine says, my name's Chris, and I'm the lead elder here at Centrepoint Church, and uh, it's, always, it's always good to, yeah, just to be together, um, and uh, just want to extend my welcome to you as well if you're new. Uh, in fact, I'm really pleased you've come, and uh, you'll, you'll, in, in a few minutes' time, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and um, it's, it's a fun passage, I'll tell you. And uh, if there's anything to take away from this morning, then I want you to know this, that we are a church that love God, that love his word, and want to see him uh, placed at the centre of everything that we do as a church. And we're passionate about him. We're passionate about all he has to say to us and to speak to us. And so we'll read, uh, with that in mind, we'll read chapter 5 in a moment. Just before we do, I just wanted to also thank all of those. If you've been part of us for more than a week or so, you would know that uh, on Wednesday evening we had a worship night. It was just an excellent evening. I just want to thank all those many who, who sort of gave up an evening to come out to that. It was just a really great time, uh, hearing from God, many different people just... Uh, exploring the gifts that God's given them and worshipping together is really good and just I'm already excited and looking forward to the next one and will encourage you to get there as well if you're able to. So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, hopefully you've got it uh, open in front of you by now. If you don't, don't panic, it will appear on the screen. We'll read the whole thing and then we'll talk about it. It says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, so his stepmom, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us keep the festival, not with old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Woo! Good on it. <laughs> um, you know, this morning we're going to be carrying our series in 1 Corinthians, and we've called it Church as God Intended. 
And um, the reason why I love preaching through a book of the Bible is because it means that you have to preach the whole counsel of God. I mean, no one in their right mind would choose on any Sunday morning to pick this passage um, if, if it was just complete up with them. But we've chosen to go through this whole book because we believe that God is laying foundation stones for our church. And uh, Paul, throughout this letter, is doing exactly the same for the Corinthian church. And so we're looking to grasp things out of it. But there are other options. You know that. We could have done other things. We could just skip over these chapters and kind of stick to the nice ones. Which is why this morning we're going to go to Joshua. No, I'm joking. (laughs) We could do that, though. We could kind of water them down and sort of say, oh, well, it was all just back then. That's all contextual back then. It's got nothing to say to us now. We could really big it up and kind of preach hellfire and damnation and, you know, kind of go another extreme. Or we could, like Ephesians 4 says, speak the truth in love and seek God and his Holy Spirit for what he might have to say to us, being faithful to the passage and seeking him for what he might be saying to us as a church. And so we're going to try to go for number four, and uh, that involves all of us, because the Holy Spirit speaks to us all. And so we're going to work through it and see what he might say to us this morning. And uh, as I mentioned, like, this, this church in Corinth, it was trying to get established, and it had been going for a few years now. Paul had kind of planted it, been there for a year and a, lot, and a half, but then left, and he started hearing reports about the church. And because he hears these reports, he decides to write these two letters of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, of which we're going through 1 Corinthians. And um, we've looked at four different foundation stones so far over the last few weeks, and this morning... We're looking at churches that God intended, a church that is well disciplined. And the way I've approached this morning's talk is that uh, I'm going to give you a bit of context to our passage, because I think that's helpful, and then I'm going to answer five key questions, um, which I think the passage draws out to help us apply this text to our lives, to our church today. Okay, so that's where we're going. Context, five questions, and then we're going to worship again. So let me just remind you of the context. Here's a map of Corinth, and Corinth was placed in the centre of Greece, just in a little strip that kind of connects the north and the south. And at its narrowest point, Corinth is like six kilometres wide. And so uh, often what would happen is for ships, rather than like travelling around the south of Corinth and uh, going right down the little dot by the last zero of 100 is a place called Milea and uh, rather than going around these treacherous waters often what would happen is that Corinth had two docks and so a ship going from like the east would dock in Corinth it would then be the boat the ship would be placed on rollers and slaves would roll it across the island and put it down in the second dock and uh, that was expensive but it was more it was cheaper Uh, no sorry it was expensive not cheaper it was expensive but it was much more safer than the alternative, and it was also much quicker. And so Corinth was quite a hub because it connected uh, the north and south of Greece, but it also connected the east and west. And so as such, Corinth of the day uh, had a massive population, many times its size now, and bigger than Guildford. um, And it was a centre of trade and commerce, and it was also a centre of progressive thinking and knowledge. People thought that the way to be enlightened was by knowledge and knowledge was everything 
And so they sought after the thinkers of this world and philosophers would come to this, this key city and, and people would align themselves with different philosophers, different thinking, and that caused division amongst the Corinthians, but all of that was brought into the church. And so chapters 1 to 4, which we've been looking at, really the, kind of, the main theme of them is about division. And Paul is speaking into that division because they're aligning themselves with different people and that's causing disunity in the church. And um, Paul stresses throughout those chapters that God uses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And the best example of that is Christ and Christ crucified. And that's our foundation and nothing else. But also, Corinth was a place where many religions and trades and people came. And so what that meant was that it quite quickly became a place of sex, a centre of sex and every different type of sex that you could possibly imagine. In fact, to Corinthianise meant to partake in sexual promiscuity. And so it became like a, like a verb. It, it became a doing thing. And so uh, the local temples would have temple prostitutes and people would have sex with them in order to please different types of gods. And so, for example, if you had a couple who were failing to get pregnant, they might go to the temple of the god of fertility and have sex with the prostitutes there in order to appease that god because they thought that would help them to get pregnant and guess what that gets into the church too so spoiler alert next week is all about that and how paul deals with the people in the church that are going to these temples and sleeping with the prostitutes come back next week for that one but, however um oh yeah but however sexually immoral corinth was it did have some boundaries and um in fact everyone knew and virtually every culture of that time, and also, I guess, mainly of our current day, is that it was not okay for you to sleep with your stepmom. That was like, everyone knew that. This is not a cool thing to do. And what we find is that, uh, in fact, in the Roman legal system, if someone was uh, sleeping with their stepmom or sleeping with their mum, then they would be uh, punished. There would be, it would be illegal for them that to happen and they would be punished. And so you've got this church, which, by the way, is the only church that existed. Because at the time, there, was just, there wasn't like lots of different churches, lots of different denominations, just one church. So you've got this one church called Corinth where all the Christians, if you're a Christian, this is where you go. You go to this Corinthian church. And in this church, you've got a guy who's sleeping with his stepmom, and they're all proud. And, uh, and they're delighted. And the rest of society is thinking, oh, that's disgusting. If, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I'm going nowhere near that. And so Paul starts off chapter 5 by saying, it is actually reported. This is, I'm actually hearing this with my ears from other people outside that there is sexual immorality among you that even the pagans do not tolerate. He's disgusted. A man is sleeping with his father's, his father's wife and you are proud. He's like, you're idiots. What is going, how on earth has this got to the point where the church, the people of God are doing this? You see, they had taken grace just way too far. What they had done is they had loved knowledge, which was a big thing, which I've already mentioned. And so um, they, they thought this through. They're thinking, well, if I'm saved by grace... If Jesus has died for my sins and God has forgiven me at Christ's expense and my debt is clear, I can do what I like. This is amazing. Even the things that are off limits to the rest of society, well, they're not off limits to me. I can crack on with this and everyone's delighted. And they're like, they're like this is great. And uh, Paul's like, oh, 
you are, you're so, you're so annoying. You're so proud. In fact, another way to translate that word proud is actually to uh, call it arrogant. You are so arrogant. They thought they were so clever and they were arrogantly praising this man in the church for sleeping with his stepmom. And Paul's like, you're numpties. It would have been better, in verse 3, it would have been better if you had gone into mourning. If you had, like, mourning, there's a whole, like, tradition of mourning. You take, you take time off, you don't go to work, you kind of don't really eat much, you, you wear different clothes. It would have been better for you to do that than to be proud about this. And so Paul, actually, he addresses this whole type of thinking in the church in Rome as well. Because this kind of thinking gets into the church in Rome and he addresses it there. And in Romans chapter six, he says, well, how should we respond to grace? What is the way in which a Christian should respond to grace? He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that may, grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. So how, so how can we then live in, in, in it any longer? And throughout the whole of chapter 6, and really chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 of Romans, uh, he goes on to explain that how when you become a Christian, you are united with Christ. You are united with him in his death through baptism, which means the old has gone, your old ways, the old sinful ways of your past have gone, but you're also united with him in his resurrection, and you have given new life and new freedom, not to sin, but freedom to live for Jesus. You are able now to say no to the ungodliness of this world and live for him because you're a new creation. And um, you can live as if this grace is true, and that's how to respond to grace. And so Paul has addressed this in another letter, so he doesn't go into massive detail here about it, but he does ask the question, come on guys, what are you doing? And so if the case is that if a Christian who has put their trust in Jesus who is saved by grace, is, is meant to actually live his life in obedience to God, but chooses not to, chooses not to follow him in that way, chooses not to trust him, what do you do? What do you do with that person? When someone's like just refusing to repent, refusing to live uh, in any other way, he's been told multiple times, hey, this, this isn't right, you know. What do you do in that situation? Well, Paul answers this throughout the passage in three different places. The first one, he says, when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit and by the power of the Lord Jesus, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. He says it again in verse 11. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, which is a Christian, but is sexually immoral, etc. Do not even eat with such people. And then again, right at the very end, verse 13, expel the wicked person from among you. So Paul's answer to this type of behaviour for someone who's become a Christian, who is a member of a church, who has been baptised, who professes to, to love Jesus but refuses to repent of a particular sin um, and who says, well, look, I'm saved by grace. For that person, the best thing for them is excommunication from the church. That's, that's deep, isn't it? Everyone's quiet. I'm not surprised. And um, what I've, so I've called this morning's talk Well Disciplined because I want to unpack this whole area of church discipline. And uh, this is what the passage is talking about. This is, what, this is what it means. When it says, hand them over to Satan, what, it doesn't sort of mean some kind of voodoo ritualistic thing where you kind of burn incense and do something. No, all he means is that that person should no longer congregate with the church, be a member of the church, be under the, under the flock of that church or be part of that church. Instead, he should be in the domain of the world, which is like 
which the Bible would call like Satan's domain, and not be part of that. So therefore not receiving all the input and, and grace that you'd get within that place. He should be out there. And there is a purpose to that, and we're going to come on to that towards the end. The, the purpose of that is for the salvation of his soul. So it's a, it's a good intention there, but that is what he says it is. And so what we're going to do... So I've given you the context, now we've got five questions, and these are the five questions that I, I'm going to go through to help us unpack this. Uh, wait. Were the five questions already up? Okay, my bad. Sorry. Those are, these are the five questions. What is it? How does it happen? Why does it happen? Will it happen to me? And what's the purpose of it? So question one, what is it? The first thing to mention is that the word discipline has the same root word as discipleship. And so, whether you know it or not, you are being disciplined, discipled, all the time. All the time. In, in every single context that you're in in church life. Every time we get up to preach, um, we are bringing discipline. Every time you gather in a small group, like in your life groups, and you're, you're chatting over tea and coffee, and someone's like, oh, what are you doing about that situation? Or how are you doing in that area? When you're in a worship session, and someone brings a word, or, or a song speaks to you a certain way, or the Holy Spirit convicts you in some, in some way, you are being discipled. You are being disciplined. It's the same root word. And there is a reality that in any group of people across the world that there are social conventions and boundaries for how people are meant to act in that particular group. That's just normal, wherever you are, in, every, in any context. And they were in Corinth, and so some things were okay and some things weren't, and there were boundaries, and they knew that. And we find that today in lots of different groups. Uh, imagine, t- take this analogy... Uh, you turn up to a golf club, country, golf club, country club, and you're in a Batman outfit wearing rugby boots. And instead of a golf club, you've got a spade, and you walk around the golf course backwards, uh, hitting with your spade, and you're just um, turfing up all the green fairways right there we go fairways you bump into the club captain who's like what are you doing and uh, you spend half your time literally you know having a chocolate bar and you just chuck your litter on the ground you are going to receive some kind of discipline either they're going to try to conform you this is this is how you do it here or they're just going to kick you out either way you're going to receive some discipline in that context and that happens in every single group wherever you are and actually the analogy is not particularly perfect But hopefully you get the point. The reason it's not perfect is because the church's job is not to try to conform you to a set of ideas. That's why it's not perfect. But actually it's to reveal to you Jesus. And he will transform you by the renewing of your mind. That's what our Bible says. But through the Holy Spirit, he will transform you from the inside out. We don't need to conform you to anything. In fact, everyone is welcome, no matter what context, what background, what uh, situation you come from. Anyone is welcome into God's church. That is reality. But there's some, there might be some reasons, some occasions where we need to ask someone not to come to the church. This was a particular occasion in Corinth. The guy was involved in illegal activity. And uh, we'll get onto that in a moment. But there, there might be some other context where it's appropriate to do something like that. And the fact is, is that the, uh, the Romans passage was all about that. It's, it's all about saying how you're a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, and so you need to flee from the old ways. And so, as well as uh, discipline, being like discipleship, they're the same things. It's also learning to be who God has made you to be. It's like be who you are in Christ. Another way of saying it might be to possess your possessions. It's like when you are a Christian, you, you are sinless, so be sinless. You are holy, so be holy. 
thus, again, there all these words, you, if you've read your Bible a little bit, you will know that these words are, are words that you can find from different passages in the Bible. The Bible tells us also how to help people. In fact, Jesus spoke on this topic. This is interesting because he knows, Jesus knows that when people get together, there can be issues. So Jesus spoke on it. So in Matthew chapter 18, he gives us four steps to how to deal with issues in the church. The first one, step one, he says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. Great, that's step one. That's the first thing to do when there's, when there's an issue. Step two, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along with you. Some friends, maybe some people you trust in the church, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Step two, easy. Step three, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. I think really is meaning like the leaders here. Um, tell it to the church, bring the leaders uh, along and uh, you know, we can talk about it then. And then step four, if they refuse to listen even to the church, to the leaders, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And that doesn't literally mean like, you know, give them taxes. It, it means kind of put them, you know, as Paul says, put, put them out into Satan's domain. That's what Jesus means, um, because back then tax collectors had a bad rep and so everyone knew what that meant. And that's what, that's, we just need to know that. And so that's what... Jesus gives us four steps, very similar, I guess, to Paul, though Paul goes straight to step four, because he, he, he assumes that they all know Jesus' words on this. And what I find really interesting is, he goes, this is Jesus speaking, he goes on, truly I tell you that whatever you bind on earth, you bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, you loose in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of, two of you on earth agree about anything and ask for it, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there with them. I think that's really interesting because that verse is used in all sorts of different contexts and I've hardly ever seen it used in the context of church discipline. Have you? And so if you um, see me coming up to you saying, oh, well, two or three are gathered together, church discipline's happening. Because that is the context that Jesus is bringing it in. Now, I don't think that means you can't use it in other contexts. You know, sometimes when you've got a small prayer meeting, you encourage you, ah, it's okay, because there's only two or three of us. Jesus is here with us. Although that wasn't necessarily the context that Jesus was speaking into in this. He was speaking into church discipline. And I find that interesting. And Paul does the same. Because in verse 2 from our passage, he, he says, Hey, I'm not physically there, but I am there with you in spirit. And in verse 4 he goes on, So when you are assembled and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is there with you too, that's where to bring this church discipline. So what is church discipline? Well, it's a combination of discipleship that happens throughout the life of the church, which ultimately helps people to grow into all that they're called to be in God. And uh, primarily, this is a work of the Holy Spirit in convicting people of their sin. And it's about their obedience to then listen to the Holy Spirit and allow God to transform and renew their thinking on all, on all sorts of different things. And so if you're new to hear, it might... I know, you know, there's some church members here that might be thinking, oh, flip, like, why did I choose this week to bring my friend? Hey, if you're new, hey, this is all good, because this is specifically speaking to church members, all right? And that's all right. And so you don't need to worry. Someone's not going to come up to you and badger you about your sin. They're not going to start poking their, their nose in your business. Actually, the reality is that none of us really should be doing that to each other unless it's, invite, unless it's welcomed, because Ultimately, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is much better at convicting and transforming people to be like Jesus than you are. It's not your job to make people like you. To say, oh, well, in order to be a good Christian, you need to be like me, married with kids and blah, blah, blah. No. 
the Holy Spirit does, does that work, and they might look slightly different to you, and that's okay. But what we do, we do help each other along the road, but we just need to make sure that we're not too quick to jump on people. The Holy Spirit's at work, so allow him to do his job. So how does it happen then? Some, so, by the way, some of these are longer than others, so don't panic. Um, if you think, oh, flip, he's only on number one. It's all right. Church discipline, like, as I mentioned before, happens all the time. And, um, but specifically in terms of putting someone out of the church, it doesn't happen straight away. And uh, it doesn't happen as soon as someone messes up. Otherwise, there'll just be no church. That's the reality. I won't be in this church. And for us all to, uh, for all of us in our walk with God, we will slip up along the way. And, but there is like an expectation in scripture that as we walk through our life with Jesus, that our trajectory would be on an upwards direction. And so, uh, you know, as we go through our, our Christian walk, there, there'll be things that the Holy Spirit highlights to us and we work on those. And there might be times where we slip on that, and, you know, and but the, the general trajectory will be on an upward curve. That's I guess that is Christian life. But when things occur, we are encouraged by Jesus to point it out to each other, as we mentioned, and to help one another out, to be accountable to each other. And if you're struggling with something, then I want to encourage you to go and seek someone that you trust and you know and ask, get them to ask questions of you. But this, in terms of kicking someone out of the church, it happens when someone is just refusing to see that something is sin in their life even after they've, it's been pointed out by two or three witnesses by the church and uh, when the leaders come along and they get scripture out and we show, we show, hey, well, this doesn't match up with what, what God would say in this situation. But if they continue to claim that they are a Christian but are truly unrepentant and are bringing damage to the church, which is what's happening in this situation, then according to Jesus and Paul, the best thing for them is to be put out of the church congregation. How does it happen? Well, it happens out of relationship. It always happens out of relationship. And so uh, that, it's kind of like an indication to, actually, there's a whole like, church membership. And uh, because member, like, as a pastor, I know who the members are. I know who's in relationship with, with me. And it always happens out of relationship. All right? It, and uh, there is clear indications along the way. So it's impossible for someone to just be put out of church membership overnight. You'll know about it because there'll be lots of steps along the way and you'll know you're heading in that direction when you get there. Most importantly, it only happens with apostolic input. And that's important to know. Up until this point, the church leaders have not taken this person out of the church. They, the, he still remains there. And then they receive this letter from Paul, who's the apostolic delegate for them looking after that church. And he gives them his backing and direction and says, this is the best thing to happen now in this situation. He encouraged them to gather together and to get on with it and saying, look, I'm there in spirit. Do you know what? In the same way, no one will be asked to leave this church without input from commission being involved. So Mark Landra-Smith, who, who takes care for our church, who's going to be coming and speaking to us in a few weeks' time, he will be involved. Or, or other people from the commission leadership team, they will all be involved in it, and nothing will happen without their, like, go. Does that make sense? And, um, and it's good to talk about this stuff, because I just want you to know, it's not like there's nothing happening in our church. You know, it's not, don't panic. I'm not about to let you know about something. No, nothing's happening, but it's just this is where the passage is. And so I'm trying to be faithful to the passage. Okay, why does it happen? Number three, why does it happen? Well, the predominant reason that it happens in this case is for the reputation of the church. That's, that's the, this case. People who are not Christians are looking in at what is going on in the church and they are disgusted 
and saying, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I do not want to be involved. And uh, to be honest, some horrendous things have happened in church in recent history. You can read about it on the news. And people look in and think, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I do not want to be involved. And you know what? Paul says, don't cover up sin. Don't sweep it under the carpet. No, it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be reported. That person needs to be excommunicated. And it's important to, and all of that is important to uphold the reputation of the church. It's also important because we live in the land of law. And it was a legal issue here. In this case, it was illegal for, in the Roman world. And that's doubly vital to us here at Centrepoint Church. It's why we take safeguarding seriously. It's why we have policies and practices and procedures in place to make sure that people are cared for. And if there's an issue, you, you can report that. You can, you can work your way through. There's, you've got life group leaders, you've got a pastoral team, you've got the elders, but you've also got outside of just this church, you've got the whole of commission, a whole family of churches, people that are looking in and, and looking after us. It's why we put all our messages online. It means that anyone uh, can listen to our messages and say, oh, I wonder what Chris is teaching that church. Hey, hey they can listen. It's why it's online. It's, because we've got to be transparent and that's why it's so important and it was important in this day and so Paul's like hey he's doing something illegal he needs to he needs to be dealt with it needs to be sorted and we will do the same there's a few other reasons it's also for unity the passage talks about yeast in bread and um and yeah if you if you kind of let let that go it kind of can have an effect on the whole batch and so um, if we accept a particular type of behaviour in the church, then what happens is new, more and more new people are added to the church and that can, their culture then becomes acceptable to that thing and now suddenly the whole church is affected. And like yeast in dough affects the whole batch. Uh, that's what happens there. It's also for, so, so for the unity, it's for the purity of the church. Leaven, like sin, has unstoppable effects which are disproportionate to its size. And if we just brush things under the carpet, then it will, um, it will have an effect that, that will affect our church. And so that's why it's important for it to be dealt with. And so leaders need to be strong enough to make sure that they do that and, and they crack on and do, do the right thing. And then also, so unity, purity and security of the church. Imagine if a wife and children um, are, you know, there's, there's a man in the household, you've got a family and the man commits adultery. And then next Sunday, he's in church worshipping God. That is just unfair to that wife and kids. It's just not helpful to them. We need to keep them safe. Church needs to be a safe place. And so there are, there's security reasons why it would be important in some instances to ask someone not to attend our meetings in order to keep members of our church safe. And so there are five, five reasons why it's important to do it. How are we doing? Okay. We're sort of still alive. No one's walked out yet, so that's all right. <laughs> Will it happen to me? Short answer is probably not. It's not going to happen to you unless you particularly want it to. In the last five years, <laughs> in the last five years of me being in church leadership, this has only happened once. It's rare. And, um, and yeah, if you don't want it to happen, it won't. The case, in this case, it was a very extreme and rare case. But it can happen, which is why it's important to lay this as a foundation. We are well disciplined as a church. And we all know what to do. When something happens, hey, I know what to do. I need to go and talk to that person. Hey, there's permission here from Jesus and Paul to go, from Jesus, to go and speak to that person when you, when you see something. Again, it's out of relationship, so don't just start poking your nose in people that you don't know. Out of relationship, when you, when you care for you build some friendships on them, you do step one, and then step two, and step three, and so on. And um, so will it happen to you? No. Here's some questions that you can ask yourself. Are you humble? We talked about godly humility last week. Are you teachable? Are you reading your Bible? 
Do you allow people that you trust to speak into your life? Are you accountable to people? And it's not heavy stuff, but just are you open to the day-by-day stuff that occurs? When someone points out your sin, are you quick to defend and shift blame? Or are you quick to say sorry? Maybe this week you should just be ready to analyse your responses. When people in your household say, oh, dad or, or husband or wife, why, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Hey, are you quick to just say, oh, you know, be defensive? Oh, I did it because of this. And, or, oh, yeah, no, you're right. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. It's a good way of just testing your heart. The fact is that we all mess up all the time. We need to be open to the Holy Spirit. And as I've already mentioned throughout this series, that um, I'm not... Yeah, as I've already mentioned throughout the series, that our foundation is Jesus and allowing his Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives. And so we just need to be open. Open to the Holy Spirit in your life. Be open to him speaking to you. The last question is this. What is the purpose of it all? This is the bit where you can just relax a little bit. This is the good bit. This is the good stuff. What's the purpose of it all? Well, in verse 5 it says, so that the Lord may bring about salvation for uh, that person on the day of the Lord. And this is, I think this is really interesting. And uh, I mentioned it earlier in the context part, but you know, I mentioned about how in Roman that it was illegal for you to sleep with your stepmom, just as it is today. And um, uh, sorry, it was illegal for you to sleep with your mum, just as it is today. And if you sleep with your stepmom, that was considered the same. And the punishment for that was banishment. It was excommunication. That was the legal punishment. I find that really interesting. The, le- the Roman legal punishment, if you got caught doing this, you were excommunicated from whatever village, town you were living in. And so I find it interesting that Paul brings that same punishment here, but when in Roman times it was banishment and there was no way back, you were never ever welcome back into that community. Whereas throughout the Bible, and specifically in this passage, whenever there is excommunication, whether there's exile, wherever there's separation, it's always about restoration and redemption. You see, God loves people. He loves people. And he knows that people mess up. And there is a lot of things that he puts in place and he encourages the church to do in order to help people not to get to that point. But if they do, even in their excommunication, the aim is always salvation, restoration and redemption. And so this is great too, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is writing again to this church and it seems like this man has repented. He's come back. He's seen the error of his ways and now Paul is writing to the church and he says the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive him and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He's already suffered enough. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love to him. And he goes on and and there's about five or six verses where he's, he's tackling this issue. And this guy has repented, he's come back and the church is treating him badly. And they're saying, oh well you did that thing, you, you're not a part. And Paul's now saying, no, no that's not how excommunication works. There's restoration and redemption, we bring him back and we restore. You know what, it happens throughout the whole Bible. And so you will notice if you read Genesis, Adam and Eve. They, they sin, they mess up, and they are banished from the Garden of Eden. But the first thing that God does, because when they're banished, you might remember they're naked and they are full of shame. What does God do? He gives them clothes. 
He gives them dignity. He covers up their shame. And he starts a restoration process, which a few verses later, a few chapters later, we hear about Abraham. And he says, through you and through your seed, I'm going to restore the whole, restore the whole world. And so even though there, is, there has been banishment, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring restoration. I'm going to bring hope to everyone. And there's more like it. So you might read about Joseph, who's sold into slavery. He is excommunicated. He is, he's banished from his family, from his father. And uh, later on in the story, the, the brothers, they, they think he's dead. They end up coming back to, to the prime minister of Egypt. And, um, and Joseph reveals himself to them. And he reminds them, hey, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. And then you, you, you'll find, as you read through the whole of the Old Testament, you've got the exile, where God's people are, are banished from the promised land, and yet all the prophets throughout all, the, all those books, are, all of it is about redemption. It's about saying, hey, God's never going to leave you or forsake you. He's bringing you back to him. He's, he's about to work. And Isaiah saw it. And he says, hey, there's going to be a child born. And he's going to be pierced through your transgressions. And, and Isaiah points to it throughout it. And then ultimately we get it in Jesus. Jesus, who died on the cross, was separated from his father, cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just the night before says, no, but not my will. Your will be done, Lord. And so when he dies on the cross, he turns to the Romans, the people that are crucifying him. And just like Joseph's words, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's an echo. Just as uh, what you meant for evil, God is meaning it for good. Jesus was separated from his father in heaven, but God was about a work of restoration and redemption and salvation in many lives. And this is the gospel. That is what the gospel is, because the reality is that all have gone astray. All have been separated and excommunicated, banished from God's presence because of their sin. That sin carries a debt where they are unable to pay. But when they put their trust in Jesus, that it's all about returning, restoring, coming back to him. And that's what it's all about. God is about a work of restoring people. And so the cultural context of the day was excommunication. It was banishment. But God's context is always restoration. That's always the aim. And we want to see people one for Jesus. It's not something to fear. And there's a whole load of steps in the process. But it's worth taking the time this morning to talk it through so that we all know where we are on the right page, if anything were to happen in the future. And you might be here for the first or second time. You might be very new to our church. And I mentioned at the beginning, I want you to know we are faithfully committed to God's word, to finding out about it, to applying it to our lives today. And you might be new to Christianity and you might think, oh, well, my life is just all over the place. I've got no hope. Well, listen, this passage is talking to the members of the church. In fact, it even says in verse 10, hey, if it weren't this way, we'd have to leave the whole world. There is a reality that... If there is no sexual immorality in a congregation such as ours, then we're not doing our job right. Because our whole society is full of people that have come from broken homes, from tough lives, from same-sex or different-sex attractive partnerships. There are people from all different contexts and they are welcome here and you are welcome here. And my prayer is that you'll continue to come along to hear about this God who loves you, who wants to restore you to a relationship with him, who cares deeply for you. And you're not going to be badgered or pestered by the people of the church, but you're going to be loved and cherished and we're going to give you value and dignity and we're going to help you because that's what God is about. That's what he is in the business of doing. And if you are a Christian, you've been here for a while and you're a member of this church, I want to encourage you, hey, let's be open to the Holy Spirit. Let's be teachable. Allow God to work in your lives. He is a good father. 
He doesn't want to change, make you into something you're not. He wants to make you what you already are, to possess what you already possess, to be the Christian that you're made to be, to know all that it means to be saved by grace, because he loves you and he's for you and he's never going to forsake you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Come on, let's get the band back up. I think it'd be good to spend some time worshipping. And um, we've been going through this book. Church has got, so you don't have to stand just yet. You can stand in a minute, Andy. It's all good. Oh, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. I, will, I will get you to stand in a second. Right, now you can stand. No, no, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Church as God intended is a church with no divisions. It's united in Jesus and Jesus alone. That was week one. Church as God intended is a church that live by the life by the Spirit, who walk in step with the Spirit in obedience to God. That was chapter two. Church as God intended is a church full of faithful believers who build their lives wisely on Jesus, straining for the prize ahead of them. It was a call, it's a call to work together in team. It's a call to be in the right direction at the same pace, together on mission, God's agenda in our hearts. Chapter 3. Church as God intended is a church where godly humility is displayed, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That was chapter 4. And this week, church as God intended is a church that's well-disciplined, not arrogant or proud of sin, but a church that's repentant, ready to say sorry, ready to walk in obedience to God, ready to interact and welcome everyone, regardless of their circumstance or situation, because that is what God is calling to do us to be as a church. So we stand. As we do, I just want to encourage you just to open up your hearts to God's. We're going we're to come into a time of worship because he is a good father. He's a good God and he loves you. And just as we do, I'm just going to pray and I want you to pray with me in your heart. And uh, you can pray. You can, oh, doesn't matter who you are, you can pray this. Father God, just want to thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that even now, thousands of years later, it can apply to us. That it's useful to, for teaching, for rebuking, for training, for correcting. Lord, it's useful for us, Lord God, to grow in all that we are called to be in you. And I just ask, Lord Jesus, would you reveal yourself more to me, even now? Even, you know, some of us don't even know you. Lord, I pray, would you reveal yourself to us now? Lord, some of us have known you for many, many years. Reveal yourself more to us, I pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be like you. Help us to be humble. Help us to be servant-hearted. Help us to be teachable. Not quick to defend, Lord God, because ultimately we, we take your example. And just thank you, Lord God, for those verses that Catherine read earlier. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. No, he brings redemption, salvation, restoration. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him, or for those who love him, for those who are in awe of him. As far as the east is from west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us.